goal of discovering fault. The main reason you're watching someone or someone carefully is because you want to discover something wrong. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. The good, for example, might be a little girl who's working on her round-off back handspring in the backyard. She comes inside, asks mommy and daddy, can you come outside and wash my round-off back handspring and just offer me some criticism? Let me know if I'm doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It's for her good, and she is calling for it. Other times, though, it's done out of evil because, for example, you may have It's done out of hypocrisy. You may have done something wrong, felt really guilty for it, and then you hide it, pretend everything is okay, and then go around to satisfy the guilt in your heart and discover false in everyone else and say, they're either just as bad as me or even worse. This is what we see in the Pharisees. Who, although the text does not explicitly say it could be that they invited the man with dropsy with the intent of catching fault in Jesus. And, and just dropsy, it's a, now we call it edema when fluids will uh, swell up into one limb. And it was kind of considered unclean and deformed and, and ridiculed back in these days. And they're watching Jesus carefully. You might say critically. But you can sympathize with the Pharisees. It really hurts the ego when you normally have the attention in some arena of your life and then someone else steps on the stage and the attention goes to that person. The heart goes insane sometimes. I've been reading through 1 Samuel and the insanity of King Saul when David begins to rise in popularity. We do crazy things. It hurts the ego when someone else gets the attention you crave. And so their hearts have to find something wrong with Jesus, which would relieve them from the fear that Jesus might be as good as he seems. And this is a side note. And then we get back to my sermon. Side note, sermon. Side note. If you have resolved to live a holy, radically obedient, Christ-exalting life, You can expect criticism. Do not be surprised when you actually start to take your faith in Christ seriously and you receive criticism. Because what happens is when you actually start to take steps in your faith, not out of self-righteous arrogance, but out of humble obedience and reliance upon the grace of Jesus Christ, it begins to expose the lukewarm hearts of other Christians or maybe so-called Christians, and they hate that. Back to the sermon. But Jesus is fully aware of what's happening, and he winsomely addresses these people with a question. Look at the end of verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So now he's going to draw them out. He's going to ask the critics to take a stand, which we know critics hate to do. Critics love to offer the whistle for everyone else's faults, but when they have to actually take a stand and put themselves on the stage, then they shy away. 
And we know this is what's happening because look what it says at the beginning of verse four. But they remain silent. They don't want to take a stand, right? Oh, we don't know. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, I don't know. But their silence is clearly an answer of no. But Jesus knows their hearts. We saw earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 47. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, verse 47, but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. In the book of John, it talks about how Jesus doesn't entrust himself to man because he knows what's in man. So he, you, cannot fool, you cannot fool Jesus Christ. You cannot fool God. No one mocks or tricks God. And this is all coming from a hypocritical heart that starves for the faults of another person to satisfy the guilt of their hypocrisy. So Jesus heals the man and exposes their hypocrisy. Verse five, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They're criticizing Jesus for breaking one of the religious rules of the day, which is not intended to be kept to make yourself feel righteous before God, but the Sabbath was intended for rest and healing for broken sinners. And they're using it for their own self-righteous gain. They're hypocritical in accusing Jesus of releasing someone from a physical deformity on the Sabbath when they themselves, when they see something else of their own value at risk, they'll save it themselves as well. And we know their hypocrisy was caught because look what happens at the end. Verse six, and they could not reply to these things. It doesn't say they would not. They could not. Their mouths have been stopped. Which, let me just say this. This is not my notes, but just... If you have people in your life that are saying things about you, and you're a Christian, and it's only the grace of God that's restraining your heart from lashing out, you can know that you don't have to stop their mouth because God will someday. Romans 3.19 says that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Do you believe that promise? You can go through life, take the criticism, and know that either God is going to stop their mouth someday, or they will repent and believe, and they'll ask for forgiveness. You stopping their mouth is not up to you. So that is the critical. Let's go to the proud. The proud person, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were in, who were, excuse me. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. This is all in the same scene, by the way. These are all different people at a dinner banquet. He's addressing four different people at a banquet. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then Jesus roots the whole thing in the ground. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Apparently in these days, at dinners and banquets, it, uh, the seating arrangement suited a shame and honor culture. The more honor you had, the closer you sat to the host. The less honor you had, the further you sat from the host. Right? Because all the attention is on the host, so the closer you are, the more attention you get. And even Jesus' whole parable depends on this. Now, you don't sit in the seat of honor unless there are people there to admire you. It's common sense. But if you're at a dinner baker and no one's in the room, you're not going to sit at the head of the table and feel proud about yourself because there's no one there to admire you. So when Jesus sees this man choose his seat, he knows he is not merely choosing a seat. He is a slave to being admired. It looks at, to everyone else as if he is walking to a seat, pulling a chair, sitting down. But Jesus sees the chains and hears the chains clanking on the ground as he goes to his seat. His craving to be admired by others expresses itself in self-exalting seat choosing. The man exalts himself to a higher seat in order to satisfy his addiction to anyone and everyone who will think highly of him. This text so grieved me. I, I mean, I feel like I don't really have to apply this because you can just read it and you can just see yourself in it. So Jesus tells the parable as a threat to those who, it's a warning to those who put themselves on a higher platform and the shame you would feel being roasted at the dinner table is nothing compared to what you would feel before God. And this is what happens when your heart is out of tune with the worship of God. You were made to be totally lost in self-forgetfulness in being entranced with what is infinitely ravishing God. Why do you think we spend so much movies, uh, money going to IMAX theaters? You, you don't go to the movie to like think about yourself. You go to get lost in the story. I was, my wife and I were in Colorado doing a family reunion. And how many of you have not been to Colorado? Raise your hand. Wow. New Jersey is weird, huh? Um, <laughs> I went to Colorado, and I'm just sitting on the lake, and there's these mountains. In that moment, I'm not going, I am really proud of myself. I, f I feel extremely small, and there's, there's a little bit of pleasure in that. You were made to get lost in greatness. And so when you, the problem is, is that every single one of us, from Bergen County to Bangladesh, has exchanged God for something else, especially the man in the mirror. And we are all addicts, running around looking for a needle of admiration 
to shoot into the veins of our hearts, even if it means choosing a better seat. And notice what Jesus says in verse 8. This is pretty shocking. It's after the comma, verse 8. Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. Think about who's saying that. Jesus is looking him in the face. God is looking him in the face. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. That word distinguished means highly valued. The highest preciousness. It's the same exact word used in 1 Peter 2.4 talking about Jesus. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The Son of God is at the table, and he's saying, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. This is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. And what's so frightening about self-exaltation over and against God is that he is jealous for the honor of his name. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is jealous for the glory and honor of his name. A Christian is someone who just loves that, loves the glory of God and loves how caught up in the glory of God God is for himself and, and how much God loves them that he would free them from their sin to enjoy him forever. So when you spit on the honor of God's name by pursuing the honor of your name until the day you die, God will humble you to the lowest place of reality permanently. Another word for hell. And this is exactly Jesus' point in telling the parable. Verse 11, for, why is he saying this to the people who are invited? And she was, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me just make one final observation, then we'll go to the next person. Jesus is not condemning the desire to be exalted. He's condemning self-exaltation. There is nothing wrong with the desire to be esteemed or admired by someone that you, that is much greater than you in honor. It's kind of normal, right? A, a, a janitor in the White House who just enjoys being praised by the president for the work that they do, or a high school boy who is praised by the really prestigious coach for the good soccer game that he played. The reason why this is not wrong is because it was preceded by their admiration of that which is greater. The problem is when it takes the place of God. The reason why it's not a sin or wrong to be exalted by God because it is preceded by your admiration of God. And so your desire to be exalted by God is secondary to your admiration of him. So there will be nothing greater than in Matthew 25, 23, when Jesus Christ returns, 
And he says, to all who have had faith in him, well done, good and faithful servant. There have been times in my life when I've said to God, it is only by your grace alone that I will be able to stand under your affirmation and admiration and praise of me as your child because I persevered to the, faith, to the end by faith. It is only God's grace, him holding you up so that he can shower more praise upon you, but you're not going to be saying, yeah, look at me. You're going to say, Why? how could God ever do this to me? It is not exaltation that is the issue. It is how you go about it. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, proper time, he may exalt you. You can either push God out of the picture and exalt yourself to be admired, and that's all you'll get. And once judgment day comes, it's over. Or you can humble yourself to be exalted by God in the end. The problem is, we love the affirmation and admiration of man more than we love the admiration of God. It shows you the insanity of sin, which is why we must get up every day in the morning and say, God, help my heart. Because I, I love the admiration of my spouse or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my boss or my friend. I love them more than I love your admiration of me. Help me. He loves to answer that prayer. Let's go to the partial. Verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him. So now he's talking to the person who invited everyone. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says a lot of things that make us scratch our heads and kind of squirm a little bit. This is one of those. Um, the quickest way to get rid of one of those things that Jesus says is to take it to the extreme and then just disregard it. So like some people might read this and be like, so you're saying that I can't invite my grandma for dinner? How am I supposed to have any friends if I can't have them over for dinner, Jesus? This is ridiculous, dumb saying, moving on. We laugh, but people do that. They ridiculify, whatever that word is, they ridiculify, you know what I mean, they make Jesus' words look ridiculous on purpose so they don't have to obey them. So you have to ask yourself this question. What is Jesus trying to do here? Remember, Jesus is always after the heart condition, not about listing out a list of rules that you can then conform yourself to. So what's the heart condition? What is, he says shocking things to shock your heart. It's exposing the sinful tendency of the heart to be inclined toward and show favor towards those that can repay you and thus get a nice return on your investment. On the other side, it's the sinful tendency of the heart to avoid those who 
cannot repay you and thus cut your losses. It is utter self-interest at the cost of other people. So this is what's happening here. The human heart is always measuring its options in terms of profit and loss. We're always asking ourselves, which of the options before me will give me the greatest return? But Jesus' real problem is not that the man wants gain. He doesn't want the greatest gain. This is the absolute insanity of the human heart. God offers infinite reward, infinite joy, and we say, nah, I'm taking something else. It's not evil to want to be repaid. The evil is that we forsake the storehouses of heavenly gold for perishable nickels and dimes. That's the, that's the insanity of the human race. We prefer worldly gain to heavenly gain. Thus Jesus says in verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And here comes the weirdest argument. Okay, why, Jesus? Because they can't repay you. What? I don't understand. So they can't repay you. How will that make me blessed? Now, many people stop here with Christianity. They will say, stop pursuing reward and simply obey God. Who cares about you? Stop pursuing reward, obey God. The problem is actually the Bible. Hebrews 11.6, quite an astonishing verse. You don't have to, return, to turn there. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But more explicitly, Jesus simply says that you will get a reward. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's why you'll be blessed. So giving to those and exhausting yourself for those who cannot repay you in different forms of currency, not just money or banquets, time, energy, resources, home, whatever, the reason why you'll be blessed by not being repaid by them because that action done from a heart in reliance upon the grace of God will result in repayment at the resurrection of the just. The problem is we simply don't believe that. I mean, I, I struggled with even preaching this text, and I'm going to leave that for Pastor Mike. Because <laughs> I, if we're honest, we don't believe that. And so we're always measuring everything in terms of, I'll do this, but what, what's in it for me? How can I get some gain out of this? if we would immerse our hearts into that statement by Jesus, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You'll be liberated from this cycle of I give so I can get return. I give so I can get. I give so I can get. Here and now. And you'll sound like Peter in Luke 18, 28 through 30. And Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. 
And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There is no self-pity in the Christian life. For all that you lose here and now will be multiplied by 10 million in the age to come. But yet, we just simply don't believe it. The most loving, generous, useful, productive, non-partial, helpful people are those who want heavenly rewards more than any other gain. Because when you have everything coming, who cares? If the kingdom is coming, who cares about all the stuff here and now? And you'll gladly release it. Now, this rebuke by Jesus makes us very uncomfortable. Um, makes us feel really uncomfortable because then we have to actually ask ourselves, if that's true, then how must my life change? We're okay with feeling a little bit of conviction, but when it comes to, okay, what am I going to do now? We like to like shift the subject, change the subject, which is exactly what we're going to see next. And this leads us to the last person, the superficial. Verses 15 to 24. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So random. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There is nothing wrong with a light and humorous atmosphere. The problem is when a heart is constantly drifting towards light superficiality. Because what that heart is a slave to is comfort. They, they don't like to feel uncomfortable, and so they're always drifting towards light superficiality. They gotta always make it light, always make it light, always make it light and never actually deal with the truth. It's exactly what this man is doing. He, it seems so strange. The light-hearted lover of keeping things superficial says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I like sat so long trying to figure this out and studied, and it, but then I noticed it says, 
when he heard these things, he said this phrase. The things that he was hearing were making him squirm. Jesus was creating such tension in the atmosphere that you could cut it with a butter knife. And so some people cannot bear to hear the truth, deal with it. And so they say something like, but yeah, we're all going to be in heaven anyway, so. I get what you're saying. That's, that's really convicting Jesus, but I mean, thank God that he's, he's forgiving and we're going to be there, so it's okay. Let's, let's talk about something else, please. And Jesus responds by cutting right through it and makes things even more uncomfortable. Because you will always remain outside the kingdom of God until you deal with the truth, which is him. And so he tells a parable of a greater banquet offered to them here and now in the kingdom of God. But when it is offered to them, the cares of this world are the dominant love over and against the heavenly feast that is offered by Jesus. And so they make excuses. Verse 18, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go to examine them. Verse 20, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Please have me excused. Notice, these, these are not sinful things. These are not sinful things. These are regular, average, everyday things. But they have become the dominant love of their lives. And they preferred that to the heavenly kingdom of God. And notice the emotional response in the parable of the king, or the master of the house, excuse me, verse 21. Then the master of the house became angry. Obviously, this is a parable about God. He's, he's using worldly things to explain heavenly things. Of course, God is going to get angry when he offers you the kingdom of God at the cost of his own son. And we say, I think I would prefer to attend to my business. That utterly dishonors his son. And so when you dishonor, if someone dishonors your son, what? of course you're going to get inflamed with rage. And so he goes to all people. He offers the kingdom to people who know they have nothing. These are people who have stuff, and they're kind of self-sufficient. I kind of got life figured out. I'm good. I mean, I go to church on Sundays. I'm one of the religious elite, and I read my Bible every now and then, so I've got that down. But what I really want is my business, my relationships, and my possessions. So it goes to people who know they have true, they have nothing spiritually. End of verse 21, the poor, crippled, blind, lame. In the second half of verse 23, go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And look at the end of verse 23, that my house may be filled to all kinds of broken, crippled, messy people. I realize that when we come to church, people are kind of dressed as nice as they can, but we're all messy. We all got mess, and God sees it. He sees we're crippled. He sees we're blind. He sees we're lame. He sees we have nothing before him. 
And he says, I'm going to give my son to have them come in and just floor them with my kindness to them. The problem is that we forsake it. So Jesus brings it back to everyone there. The you there. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That you is plural. Everyone there. And this you is referring to the religious elite. The ones who go to church on Sundays and think, you know, I'm going to attend church on Sundays and I've got that down. And then they go home to what they really want to do. And Jesus says, you're not in. You will not taste of my banquet. It's interesting how he says, taste my banquet. Because what their hearts really crave is something else. And because they attend church and have said the sinner's prayer when they're 13, they're like, I'm good. But what I really want is fill in the blank. And Jesus cuts right through that person's superficiality and says, you're not in. It's like the person who forsakes the Thanksgiving feast for a saltine cracker without the salt. So let's just recap before we end an application. Jesus is at a dinner banquet. And remember what I said at the beginning, he always goes after the heart and he sees four different people. He sees the critical person. It's coming from a hypocritical heart and so he goes after the hypocrisy and exposes it. And then he goes to the proud person. He sees that they're, it's not just choosing a seat, but it's, it's the self-exaltation that has to be admired by people. And he warns them, if you continue to exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Humble yourself under Christ and he will lift you up someday. And then he goes to the partial, the person who is always showing favor to those or avoiding those who can't repay them because they think that the only gain they can get is here and now. And then he goes after the superficial who doesn't want to deal with the truth and actually deal with the possibility they might not actually be in the kingdom of God despite the fact they think that they are. So let's apply this. To the critical person, maybe you're critical, here's some questions. All I'm going to do is ask questions. Are you critical? Are you a perfectionist? Are you the type of person that always seems to do things right and well? Do you then use that as a basis to always play the coach and referee to everyone else? Did you have critical parents? If so, has that made you critical? Or maybe you are in the opposite direction and avoid all criticism of other people to justify yourself in the way that you have been criticized in the past. Do you keep record of other people's faults in order to make sure that you always have ammo when they accuse you of something? You see this in marriage all the time. You like stack it up in this little, this little cupboard, right? And as soon as they attack you, yeah, well, how about, right? And you're just like dishing it right back. You're going to vacuum the floor? You're going to take out the trash? Right? That's what we do. We, we stack up things against other people just in case they lash out so we can return the favor. 
Are you hiding something and thus search for other people's faults in order to appease the pent-up guilt in your own heart? Critical people tend to also be very controlling. If you struggle with control, and I've actually spoken with people who are aware of their serious control issues, and you know who you are. And if you are aware of it, praise God that you're aware of it. How merciful of God to reveal that to you so that you can begin pleading with God to begin to release of the, the, the facade, the figment of the imagination, that you can control things to make things the way you want them to be. If you struggle with control, have you considered taking five minutes every day in the morning and reciting Isaiah 45, five through six? Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To the proud, maybe you're proud. Are you proud? Try not to sound too spiritual here. Because the tendency of, well, of course we're all proud. Everybody struggles with pride, so it's okay. That's a proud person talking. Seriously. The, when you say, do you struggle with pride? Well, I mean, don't we all? That's, a proud person talks that way. I've said that before. And I've looked back on my heart and I was like, it was so arrogant. Because we relativize the conviction to everyone else. And thus, it, it, it kind of weakens the Bible's rebuke of your pride. Have you ever, this may sound gross, but it'll be a good image. I was cleaning out the drain in one, in one of my wife and I's upstairs bathroom. And I was like, I do not want to know what's down here. <laughs> I get the hanger, pull it out, and it's, it's like death in human form. Like it's... <laughs> Have you ever actually stared your pride in the face and been appalled? And look to Jesus who humbled himself to being crushed for your pride. And that will level you. I encourage you to stare your pride in the face and let God take out the legs from underneath it. Do you dominate conversations? Do you always have control of the conversation with stories about yourself? And reference yourself and increase the volume level of your talking to draw attention to yourself and thus be admired in the presence of all. It's the danger of preaching. It's the risk of preaching is, is that. So, Pastor Mike and I will do everything in our power to be aggressive at our own sin. The temptation there. When was the last time you looked at the person you love most in your life or that you have wronged and said with honesty, I am so sorry? Do you daydream about your own success? Do you lose sleep at night imagining yourself in situations where everyone would admire you? You know those times when you're just like, you can't go to sleep because you keep daydreaming or night dreaming, whatever. Um, Do you exalt yourself through your sacrifices? And this is, this is interesting. Some of you would say, 
well, I would never sit in the place of honor like that arrogant guy. I'm just too, too scared to like do that. There is such a thing as self-pity where you exalt yourself through your sacrifices, through what you've given up. So for example, it's blatantly obvious the guy who like skirts in front of everyone else and takes the seat of honor. But what about the person who gives up their seat and when no one praises them for that, they get bitter and hold grudges. Boastful people boast in their successes, but the self-pityer boasts in their sacrifices. Self-pity goes under the radar because it looks humble, but in reality, it is pride that isn't praised for what it sacrifices for other people. This kind of person tends to be really helpful and sacrificial, but when they aren't applauded for it, they throw a pity party because they aren't admired for it. You can see this in marriage sometimes. I've seen it in my own, and Karen knows exactly what I'm talking about. You're, for a season of life, you're, you're giving up a lot. You're sacrificing a lot. And you're kind of keeping, holding a, a debt, if you will. And when they don't respond the way that you want them to, you lash out eventually. The partial. Do you only help to get something in return other than joy in God? The primary profit and loss margins that we should use to evaluate our decision is, will this give me more of Jesus? For that is the kind of heart that makes Jesus look very good. Do you only say yes to your spouse if they can give you something in return? When was the last time you gave your waiter or waitress a big tip, even when they were bad? Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Are you only okay? I should say it this way. Are you only kind to those who show you kindness? What about the people that drive you crazy? Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. You just say this to people who, you've got a difficult boss, or it's a friend who's always cutting you down, or we have someone in your life who has physically, emotionally, or sexually done something to you that is not okay. And you see Jesus say, love your enemies and do good to them? Do you know what my spouse has done to me? Do you know what my father did to me? Do you know what my... If you knew my boss... what possible gain could there be in doing good to them? Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. That should be enough. Is there someone awkward or socially unintelligent that you shy away from because it costs too much to interact with them? 
Romans 15, 1 through 3, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. To the superficial. The superficial person in the last part of the passage is directed toward the man or woman who thinks they are in the kingdom of God and is afraid to face any possibility that he or she might not be able to taste the kingdom of God. So you hear the preached word. Someone says something to you, or you read something in the Bible, and it convinces you, and you, you get so uneasy to the point where you think, am I not a Christian? And then you quickly revert to, well, I go to church, and I said the sinner's prayer. Once in the previous school, one of my wife and I in Philadelphia was interacting with a kid, and he was leaving the school. And I, I knew the kid really well, so I was just joking, and I said, oh, are you too good for Jesus? Is that why you're leaving the school? And he looked at me in the face, and he says, I go to church three times a week. And he was dead serious. This is the type of superficial person I'm talking to, but when you actually look at your life, are you like the person who, when offered the feast of the kingdom of God today, would rather have something else? When you look at your life, what do you value most? To the critical person, I would say that Christ justifies you by his blood. You have been declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. So you have no need to criticize others. To the proud, Christ humbled himself to the point of being shed, excuse me, killed on a cross. And now he's exalted at the right hand of God for you to be lost in yourself and admiring him for all eternity. To the partial, Christ lost everything to give you the greatest gain himself. He saw you, as long, as long, along with everyone else in the world, as spiritually blind, lame, and dead. And he died for you to give you himself. To the superficial, Christ has shed his blood to give you the greater joy than what you secretly treasure more than him. This all goes back to the cross. And so let's ask Jesus to give us help to see that more clearly. Father, I thank you again for this time. And thank you for humbling me through this passage. And that you have spoken with such winsome authority to our hearts to change us. And that Christ, you gave your life to rescue all these kinds of people out of the mess that they're in and find freedom in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.